RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Andrew Lowenthal is a writer and consultant focused on digital authoritarianism. He manages the Network Effects Substack, writes for Racket and Public, and directs the digital civil liberties startup, Liebernet.org. And he coordinated the Westminster Declaration, which is a statement opposing the cynical use of countering disinformation as a tool of censorship and the coordination between government, media, NGOs, academics, big tech, and philanthropy that is enabling it. And he joins us from the UK. Andrew, welcome to our Reality Check radio station. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay, so tell us how the Westminster Declaration came about. Please. Well, yeah. I'm, well, it came about because of a whole variety of different issues. Obviously, there's this increase in censorship that people have uh, been highlighting increasingly. And, there, and probably the biggest catalyst was the Twitter files. So uh, there was a meeting that happened in London that was called by Matt Taibbi, uh, Michael Schellenberger, and myself, uh, that was in the last June, uh, that brought together kind of across uh, spectrum uh, group of people from left and, and right who were really concerned about the ways in which these kind of new terms uh, of mis and dis and mal information were essentially being used as a cudgel uh, in the same way that, say, you know, fake news might also be used as a cudgel to say, you know, your speech is illegitimate you're wrong you shouldn't actually you shouldn't even be allowed uh to speak because you're uh you're a danger uh apparently to mm. to society um which isn't to say there isn't missing disinformation out there but the the biggest purveyors of it tend to be the people with the most means you know governments and big corporates and and other things but the focus had become very much on the everyday citizen so it's kind of a Policing disinformation street crime is one of the ways I uh, think about it, rather than policing kind of white collar or disinformation corporate crime. So that was essentially the origin, and the, and again the catalyst being the Twitter files, but also other discoveries around you know how government and corporates were um, utilizing this yeah this new concept of disinformation to essentially to create structures of censorship. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, like you just mentioned, and, and we're all aware of it, uh, we keep hearing about mis- and disinformation from these authoritarian types, but it's so obvious, everyone knows it, that the, they are the ones who are doing it. Well, exactly. I mean, is, do you really want to be trusting politicians to determine what is true and false? Actually, they are the least qualified people of, of anyone, you would say, apart from perhaps a used car salesman no offense to a used car yeah. salesmen and women uh but that they are not the arbiters and are extremely underqualified uh to play that role uh democracy is messy getting to the truth is messy but i think we've you know worked out over millennia and particularly over the last hundred years or so that that democracy is still the best way to get at the truth. And that means having a conversation and that means sometimes being uncomfortable. And that means oftentimes people will get it wrong, but you get it wrong and you kind of edge close to the truth as the conversation uh, evolves. And I think that's what we need to get back to rather than just shouting, you know, disinformation at people that we disagree with. 
Yeah, it's the power, though, of social media, isn't it? Is that the line in the sand? Is this, is that where we see this uh, mis, dis, and mal information kind of um, talk begin? Because before mainstream media, I guess the dis and misinformation was just information that was omitted, and we didn't even know, or many of us didn't even know that was taking place. But as soon as social media took on that power, suddenly we hear these words. Well, I think it, it changed. What changed was who got to speak. And so, you know, if we look at, say, the Iraq war, I mean, talk about disinformation. We were told that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. There were not. We were told that Osama bin Laden was in, in Iraq or that Saddam Hussein had been responsible uh, for attacking the Twin Towers, which is an absolute complete fallacy. And these were lies. You know, per, you know, created by governments and then uh, amplified through the media, and we were taken into a war as a result of you know essentially an absolutely massive lie. And people um, died. And, Lots of and people, people died. died. Yeah. Huge numbers of people died. So talk about you know the costs of disinformation. That you couldn't get a better um, example. I think what what changed is that you know people who who previously shouldn't have been allowed to speak a little bit too uncouth, maybe not sufficiently educated, suddenly started joining the conversation and they were being told, well, actually, so we don't really want your your contributions. We, we think you're a purveyor of mis and disinformation. We think you, it would be better if you left it up to the experts. And I'm sure, you know, if you look at the COVID experience, um, you know, how much did the experts get right? In the end, in the end, they got quite a lot. Well, it, well, wrong. it seems that many of the experts knew what they were saying was wrong, but said it anyway. So that's even kind of worse. Often, often, admittedly, yeah. Um, uh, as it, well, you explaining that you know the experts and uh, people not so well qualified. Sounds like there's an element of class war in this. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's very much a kind of uh, elite backlash. It's kind of crisis of elites, of the elites that, that some people uh, talk about, that you have this new town square uh, that has uh, emerged online that is messy, that is not without its problems, absolutely. And I think you know one way to view it is the kind of elites or kind of expert class trying to retake uh control or remanage the conversation uh that is allowed uh within democracies and well and and uh, non-democracies uh as well but they in some ways they're very much failing at this and i think you only censor uh when you really lost the argument and people have lost faith and trust in you and you're not going to rebuild it you know, through essentially censoring people, you're only going to make them feel, uh, well, become more suspicious of what's going on. Oh, why can't I read uh, about, you know, yeah. where COVID may have come from or why can't I hear about what maybe some uh, more side effects of a vaccine that I'm actually being allowed to to know about or et cetera, et cetera. So, so this is, this is, it's a, a strategy that's only going to backfire, and it is backfiring now, I think, as you've seen. You know, people roll their eyes now when you talk about mis and disinformation and not just the kind of people who are up to speed on on yeah. the debate. It's kind of uh, 
it's the same way again that Trump would shout fake news at people. It's essentially become the same thing, but it's uh, it's what uh, it's slightly more sophisticated word that people on the kind of yeah. liberal progressive side of the equation shout. Yet there is that Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which I looked up and reread before we started chatting, and it's so mm-hmm. very clear. Oh, it's absolutely clear. Um, and what's surprising here is that a lot of this work comes out of a kind of liberal left progressive space, which is where I've spent the last couple of decades. And these, you know, that space was the space that were were more aggressive in defending free expression. That you know, it was traditionally you know, free speech was traditionally a value that was associated more with the left than it was with um, the right. Uh, and now you see all these NGOs, you see all these uh, kind of liberal philanthropic organizations kind of taking this up. At the same time, there there is an inorganic element to this as well. And this is one of the things that we found um, through the, the Twitter files is that there is kind of state activity going on here. Actually, one of the most recent revelations uh that that was published on public and on on racket that i also um wrote about is um a project well two projects called the election integrity partnership and one called the virality project <laughs> um which was set up to combat mis- and disinformation the virality project around uh, so-called anti-vaccine uh, misinformation it's now come to light uh, as a result of those investigations and uh something called the house committee on the weaponization of government that's happening in the us that these initiatives were actually conceived of at the behest of the department of homeland security yeah yeah uh, and the, and that was hidden uh from people and actually may well be uh an egregious first amendment violation so these kind of ngo and academic partners who are pretending that essentially this was an organic initiative that they were behind in emails. We can now see that it, this whole project was done at the request of uh, the Department of Homeland Security. In fact, NGOs and uh, and like have kind of been weaponized. They're not what Absolutely. they used to be, are they? You can't, and I feel sorry for the genuine ones. Hard to trust them now. Absolutely. So I I, uh, co-founded and ran an NGO for almost 18 years uh, called Engage Media, still exists. I've handed it over about a year ago to a new director. And we worked in in, uh, Asia working on issues of online freedom of expression. So our whole thing was, you you know, working with people in the Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia, other places where, you know, the government was constantly threatening people's freedom of expression, it was always very, very uh, limited. People were demanding more kind of free speech and more rights online. And this was this was the work. And then to kind of see people do this turn where you know, more in the West was like, well, actually, we need to be a little bit careful of, you know, what's online. We need to maybe trust the government a little bit more to police what's true and false. I mean, you tell a, you know, Someone in Thailand that they should let the government, you know, uh, you know, who, whose military occupies half the Senate, um, that they should trust the government more with, you know, determining what's true and false and what can be said, and they'll, you know, look at you askance, and 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 that's just not how it works. And so again, something has happened in the NGO 
space. Again, I don't. I think it's clearly evident now that not all of it is kind of a natural evolution as well, because again, the Twitter file showed us that there is the, the state's fingers have gotten into these spaces. Uh, and I, but I think there's a reckoning that hasn't happened quite inside those spaces themselves because I still, I still communicate with those people. I haven't kind of been completely ejected uh, from them. Uh, but people are kind of, you know, they whisper on the sidelines and kind of go, oh, yeah, something's not quite right here. But, you know, there's very few people kind of going, hey, wait, actually, that's enough. Uh, something, something's gone wrong. You've got to follow the money. Don't you? <laughs> I, uh, money, yes, but I think a lot of well, actually, sometimes it's worse, <laughs> which is oh, really? that, yeah. which is that I think a lot of people are really true believers uh, in this, and they're not just doing it for the money. They really think they're doing the Lord's work, and that they're kind of saving democracy, saving humanity, essentially through through censorship. Or what they would kind of consider content moderation or you know maybe dealing with the deplorables or you know who, whoever it might be the people who are threats to democracy and sometimes you have to do undemocratic things to you know protect democracy yeah it's uh, messy apparently. it can be messy you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet and all that sort of stuff but yeah. in the end surely it goes against instinct um I think it goes against the norms that we became used to for a very long time in, ter in terms of what what democracy and what living in a democratic society looks like and what the kind of baseline values of the kind of NGO sector were. Um, does it go against them in terms of our ingrained humanity? Uh, perhaps not. It's kind of allowing some of the worst parts of ourselves to kind of rise to the to the surface so there's a there's definitely a tension there unfortunately the kind of more authoritarian uh side of the equation seems to be winning out for now yeah but you do get the feeling that the people are waking up to it um who received the um declaration how did you sort of like present it publicly and what sort of reaction have you had to it uh so there's a, lot, there's a lot in there let me go through let me go through sure. them Didn't so mean to we <laughs> no that's all right you'll probably remind me of a couple of them as they go along um the so we well it was presented to the um british prime minister we, we, i don't think we uh, had a had a reply specifically um uh, because the UK in particular has an issue with this too. They actually was discovered through an investigation by a group called Big Brother Watch um, that they had mobilised something called the 77th Brigade. Yeah, we've heard about the, the 77th right, Brigade, yeah. Exactly, the military a military brigade to police disinformation during the pandemic. Um, the reception, I think, has been quite good. Um, you know, we had quite a number of high-profile um, people who signed from you know, Jonathan Haidt, Stephen Pinker, Julian Assange, Tim Robbins, Richard Dawkins, John Cleese. I mean, you can people can go to yeah. WestminsterDeclaration.org and see the the, the signatories. Yep. yep. Um, so that that generated quite a lot of um, interest. We had kind of launched. We had New York Post. We had 
the Times uh, in the UK, we had the Telegraph, we had Die Welt in, uh, in Germany, who actually printed the whole thing in their physical version, the whole declaration, um, which was quite exciting to see. We had Italian media. So we've got quite, quite a lot of actually, I guess, mainstream media that hasn't quite closed itself down uh to these uh conversations yet definitely no uh coverage in the kind of uh left progressive um media outlets that once would have been the champions of um, why, why, why do you think they wouldn't carry that sorry to jump in but no, I've, I've worked in news for a long time and it really doesn't matter in the end and a, a story's a story right and um you cover stories but not anymore. It seems there are inconvenient stories that you don't. Yeah, and I think that you don't cover exactly. I think that's one of the new one of the new things about this media environment that I think really started coming up since you know Trump and Brexit, and particularly we saw during COVID is you just don't cover stuff. You just you know go mum on yeah. on on things uh, and pretend like they're not even happening and that's that's new and that's quite well it's disturbing to be honest because you see major stories that you're looking at and going this seems like something really really big i'm not saying specifically around the the westminster declaration that it could be all manner of different issues and then almost all the mainstream media won't touch it and that gives the impression to people that that oh this is uh nothing to see yeah nothing here. to see here and and, and anyone think, who has a point to make is seen as some crazy type. Yes, absolutely. So I think that's that's to me is very very strange. And I have people who work in people. I have friends, I should say, um, who you know, work in kind of left liberal media outlets, and I will you know send stuff to them and ask them, you know, are you going to put any plans to cover any of this and you know, they're like, no, we're not, we won't be looking at it or no one wants it or no one it, wants and, it. Yeah. Okay. How do you know that? Well, and I mean, I've had, I've had, I have keep returning to this conversation that I once had with a friend who was a senior editor at the, the Guardian Australia, who just was convinced she, literally this person was saying, you know, progressives are just smarter are the words that keep. Oh, the arrogance. Yeah. And as this is arrogance, like we know what's going on. We don't need to kind of tell you, uh, the things that you don't know, oh. we're in charge. The other people are just not smart enough to to know. We'll sort it out uh, for you. So yeah, again, we're in this we're in this new territory um, in many respects in terms of the media space, which is a little bit, you know, it goes against the current in 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 the sense that we have you know we have the internet, and so we should have be having the best conversations we've ever. Had, yeah, yeah. But we actually well, well, had. We did more for control. a short time. We did for a we short did. time. We did. There was a decade or so there that where it was amazing, and then yeah, yeah. I think people started. Well, some people started going. Well, this is getting a little bit too loose. We need to. We need to. We need to, things need up to do here. something about this. Um, I saw an interview, um, or I think it was uh, on a podcast, Rogan's podcast. Elon Musk, one of his more recent appearances, he was talking about you know the Twitter files you mentioned. And basically, mm -hmm. I think he, you know, almost like a quote, he said it was like Pravda. That's what he said, um, mm -hmm. the old Twitter. And mm -hmm. obviously, um, I think there are a lot of, you know, intelligence, former intelligence personnel, or maybe they were straddling two roles that were in the structure of Twitter 
you know, in, mm-hmm. in significant positions. So obviously sort of infiltrated, which is a fascist, fascistic, I think is the word, kind of coming together of, of government and big business. From your observation, do you think that's something that, and, and that's an example of one of the big tech platforms, but let's say the big tech platforms, they were willing participants in, in this or they had to do this, they had to play this game to kind of stay in business. What's your view on that? I mean, I think it's a it's a mix uh, of of both. I mean, to, and to go back um, to what you're saying in terms of the this kind of uh, people straddling roles or or intelligence community inside big tech. I mean, we saw you know, massive amounts of of that. I mean, the um, deputy general counsel of Twitter was the former general counsel of the FBI. Right. So, and that's just one example, but there were, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of former intelligence people who are working inside Twitter. And you have to imagine still working inside all of the other big tech um, companies that have not had the same kind of uh, clean out uh, that happened at um, Twitter. Not that Twitter still is. still has still has its own issues at the same same time so you do see this merger and then at the same time you see this incredible new level of coordination uh between people who who do have current positions in in the government who are then communicating with uh twitter and big tech or you have initiatives like the ones i mentioned earlier the virality projects um election integrity partnership where the essentially there are ngos and academic institutions acting as proxies between uh big tech and and the government as well so you have essentially you have people inside you have these kind of proxy uh cut out entities that are um acting in between government and then you have and and technology companies and then you have uh government itself doing huge amounts of direct communication to the technology companies at the same time but yes you do have this new merger i mean again if you look at the virality project i mean what was it doing it was apparently policing anti-vaccine disinformation so who was it and you up up to and including and this is in their own words true stories of vaccine side effects yep. were considered misinformation. So if you got an injury, your son got myocarditis or one of the other things that are now acknowledged to to, to certainly be uh, a side effect of the vaccine, and you went on and said, hey, you know, this happened to my son, well, you were spreading mis- mis- or disinformation about that. So who, who was protected as a result of that? The government, but also... Um, the big big pharma any so, anyone with anything to lose was was anyone with um yes. we had it here uh, it's a global thing and uh, maybe it's the five eyes connection for new zealand because we're not big players we're you know five and a half <clears throat> million population which is the size of a big city in global terms and i've spoken to people on this program who had posts on facebook on twitter surgically removed so obviously there were people looking and calling someone and saying, take this down. And they did. Absolutely. And that that was one of the roles of the Virality Project. And what was released uh, a week or so ago and that we wrote up in uh, public uh, was the, the tickets. So essentially everything that was flagged by this project was released by this um, House Committee on the Weaponization of of, uh, of Government in, in the US. So we can now also see 
exactly what was being flagged by them. But of course, there are other, you know, as, as we mentioned, the 77th Brigade previously in the UK, um, there were also Twitter files that I did on the Australian government. They were also, there was this, essentially this counter-extremism uh, section of um uh of the australian government that sits within the kind of intelligence uh agency that was flagging tweets to twitter as well and communicating to them including twitter accounts of 20 that had 20 followers i mean why are you policing a twitter account of 20 followers i mean this is not uh significant um work they're policing jokes or policing all manner of different things so every country five eyes i think in the lead as you mentioned was doing this um work it was global uh yeah they does protest too much that comes to mind that mm. over the top reaction it's kind of hard to square that with you know um trying to um lessen vaccine hesitancy because we're all sitting there really worried and scared that you know we're all going to be wiped out by this horrible pathogen um, mm. it, 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 that kind of doesn't make sense for the uh, the top-down sort of takedown of anyone who had anything to say. Um, it, it's kind of like there's, there's something else that we still haven't got to yet. Could be. Yeah, that, that I certainly don't know. I mean, I think mm. a lot for me can be explained just by general panic um in government and also pressure from you know corporate profiteering uh i think as you say to go back to your follow the money yep. quote as well but i mean never underestimate what a politician will do to kind of save their save their backside or or get ahead in the game uh as well but the you know it certainly was at a level that we should be asking a hell of a lot more questions OTT, than we have been asking over the top possibly i mean the the just to kind of go a little bit more on that i mean the person who led the the selection integrity partnership and and the virality project is admittedly a former cia fellow i mean <laughs> that's go. kind of that's public that's yeah. public knowledge uh well, so well, again well, yeah. unfortunately, a new level of cynicism is probably uh, the bit of pill that we need to take right now. Um, the Again, the Twitter sale was an interesting um, thing to happen because you would think with so much to hide in the Twitter files that came out, and there'll be more probably, uh, and the power it had, that the last thing, if money's not the object, uh, if it's you know kind of being backed up by you know, the industrial military complex of the United States who has trillions to spend on things usually, that you mm. wouldn't let that happen. You'd, you'd much rather let it sort of pass away than fall into the hands of someone who could blow the whole thing, yet that seems to have been what happened. Can we explain that? Well, reality is complex, I guess. I mean, I, I can't explain it. I mean, on some level... I'm not asking you to, got... but it just seems that... You wouldn't want that, 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 that like gives the game away. Yes. I mean, in that sense, we got quite lucky. I mean, I'd like, maybe that's the naive version, um, is we got quite lucky that, that we've managed to kind of learn, uh, so much more than we otherwise would have learned. I think we might have got there eventually, but it might have taken another, you know, three, four, five or more years. Um, at the same time, I mean, new Twitter is not, 
utopia either. There's still, certainly still seems to be shadow banning going on. There's still throttling of Substack. You know, if you post a Substack link on uh, on Twitter, uh, it essentially gets gets throttled and doesn't uh, doesn't reach the same level of audience because uh, Musk has a tiff with with Substack. Um, so yeah, I think we yeah. need we still need to be putting pressure on you know new Twitter to make sure it doesn't become the same as old Twitter. Yeah. Okay. Do you think do you think the tide has turned? Um, it's often hard to tell when the tide has turned until it's turned and you can see it going going back out. I think definitely the conversation has changed. And the the way in which people understand how modern or contemporary public opinion management happens has been updated. I think for a long time, you know, in, you know including during COVID, people were still thinking about kind of an Iraq War style kind of model of how governments essentially you know manage public opinion, which was a bit you know bit more heavy-handed and not particularly sophisticated. I think the fact that people have updated their kind of uh, mental shortcuts to go, okay, there's this integration with the security apparatus, with big tech, there's shadow banning, there's all these different ways that aren't just hit you over the head with information or direct censorship. So I think that, that is good. I think one of the silver linings, if you can find one of the, the conflict in um, Israel-Palestine is that a lot of people on the left uh, have gone, oh, okay, I'm getting censored now. Oh, they're um, starting to see it. Yeah, they're starting to feel it. Yeah. And so they're starting to go, okay, maybe I should kind of pay, pay have, have paid a bit more attention here. The shoe's now on the other foot. I mean, again, people should have a little bit more foresight uh, than that. So I think that is is changing the conversation as well. Um, but new tactics and strategies will emerge. But I think, so Titusen, I do not know, to give you the, the yep. shorter version. Yep. Conversation yep. changed, most definitely. Yeah. That, uh, the conflict um, that you just mentioned, that's, how do I how, how do I put it? That's potentially a masterclass of mis, dis, and malinformation right there, isn't it? Because everything's in the mix. There's the atrocity porn, there's the, historical you know taking sides there's there's so many um so many angles to it that can be manipulated in in the discourse the public discourse and reporting yeah i mean absolutely and it's the next level of warfare i guess as well in terms of just how much you know our minds are part of the conflict and so much of, of modern warfare now is, you know, uh, propaganda, essentially. Yeah. It's almost uh, not territory, right? It's almost not territory. It's hearts yeah. and minds is the territory now is kind of yeah. how it feels. Just, just as much as real territory is. Yeah. And I think that was always has always been the case in warfare for a long time. But we're, we're at this kind of next level with it now uh, because you, you, the which at least on one level, again, if I'm looking for silver linings, I don't know why I'm feeling so positive this morning, um, <laughs> means that they have to care about what we think and, and say, right? The, the other alternative would be that, well, you know, you have no voice, you have nothing to, to contribute, we're just doing exactly what we want. They do, you know, 
care about what we what we say and think because they know that it's going to have an impact on uh, what they they um, do. So in that sense, this the conversation is so incredibly um, important, and we have to kind of fight for that space to have you know good conversations to work through um, issues and not just leave it to the so called experts. All the experts. Okay, so if people want to know more, they can go to westminsterdeclaration.org. I'm on the site now. Open discourse is the central pillar of a free society, right in my face at the moment. Have you had good traffic to that site? Ah, uh, Yes, we have. We've had quite a lot of uh, traffic, thousands of people riding in uh, as well. I think I looked at the uh, the tweet that Michael Schellenberger put out the other day. It's gone past a million or so uh, views as well so no, it's certainly getting around but we want to want it to get out there more so it's also great to be able to uh, talk to you and um, hopefully get a few more kiwis taking a look look at well, it as well i think our audience are going to be interested so expect a few incomings from this part of the world you Fantastic. mentioned julian assange earlier and just i think maybe you had a brief mention more recently mm-hmm. in our chat what do you think is going to happen with julian assange um it's a good question uh i it seems like things are moving from what from what i've seen there's kind of these conversations happening in australia i believe with uh the new ambassador there caroline kennedy there was this big parliamentary declaration that went to dc um you know there's cross political support i think uh in australia at least uh, the left and and the right uh, for him to be released. Um, I mean, again, I'm I'm terrible at making predictions, and I'm 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 loath to make them. But things seem to be moving in the right in the right direction. Um, so I'm a little bit more hopeful than say I was a year or two ago that that he may be. Um, that he may be released. I've had a few different conversations with different politicians recently that where where they seem to have a little bit of hope around what's going on and the, the needle is being moved essentially, you know, high up in the in the US federal government to say, hey, you know, leave it alone now. But let's let's see. Hopefully, hopefully, yes. Um and I think one of the one of the things with to kind of link back to the Westminster Declaration as well is to really see how these things are linked. I mean, it's kind of and, and back to your conversation before about, you know, kind of modern warfare. I mean, these hearts and minds and the kind of controlling the narrative and um really top these top down attempts at control uh of the conversation are you know wikileaks has, has certainly been a well the vanguard in many respects in its in its earlier iterations of that but you know uh those who kind of want to have a very top-down managed conversation are evolving they've evolved from how they and what they did to wikileaks to what they're now doing with disinformation but it's one and the same package as far as i'm um concerned it's all a fight for free expression if anyone has taken one for the team, it's him, right? Gee. Wow. God. More more than one. Yeah, a That's lot. Sure. Andrew Lonthal, who coordinated the Westminster Declaration. Really interesting chatting to you. Thanks for coming on our program. No problem, Paul. Great to have chatted with you. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.